Oh boy, it's Monday again, and you know what that means. I'm Shayna, your host, and I'm here to give you another episode of Criminal Beauty. But first, as you know, this podcast is free to listen to, and I don't get paid to do this. So getting equipment and software for me to give you the best listening experience is going to take some time. So please bear with me. With that being said... We do have listener support for anyone that wants to help us out. If you would like to know how to do that, you can go to anchor.fm, search Criminal Beauty, and click on the profile. And I greatly appreciate anyone who is gracious enough to help out. The case I'm covering today is about five children who disappeared after their house burned down to the ground in 1945. This is the case of the Sauter children disappearance. Let's start with a little background. George Sauter was an immigrant in the United States from Italy who was born in 1895. George and his older brother arrived in Ellis Island, but almost immediately after, George's older brother went back to Italy, leaving 13-year-old George by himself. He eventually found a job working for the Pennsylvania Railroads. He carried water and supplies to the laborers for a few years and then moved to Smithers, West Virginia where he worked as a driver, and he eventually started his own trucking company. Jenny Capriani, I think is how you pronounce that, and her family immigrated to the United States when she was only three years old. George and Jenny met each other at a store called The Music Box, which Jenny's parents owned. They both hit it off immediately and eventually got married and moved to Fayetteville, West Virginia. They settled into a two-story timber frame house about two miles outside of town. Together, George and Jenny had 10 children between the years of 1923 and 1943. It was a busy Christmas Eve in 1945 for the Sauter family. Nine of the children were at home for the celebration, and Marion, the eldest at 17 years old, had just surprised her younger siblings, 12-year-old Martha, 8-year-old Jenny, and 5-year-old Betty, with toys she had bought from her job. It was about 10 p.m., and as children do, they hustled their parents for a later bedtime so that they could enjoy playing with their new toys. Jenny had told them that they could stay up as long as 14-year-old Maurice and 10-year-old Louise were still awake. So while George and the two older boys, John, 23, and George Jr., 16, were all asleep upstairs, tuckered out from a long day on the family farm, the younger ones stayed up and played. Jenny reminded Maurice and Louise that they still needed to bring the cows in and feed the chooks. And chooks is another term for chickens. She then retired to bed with her two-year-old daughter, Sylvia. It was 12.30 a.m. when Jenny was startled out of bed by a prank phone call. The caller had asked for someone that didn't live at the house and laughed. Jenny recalled the laugh as being weird and drowned out by clinking glasses and background laughter. She assumed it was probably a drunken Christmas party. Annoyed, she hung up and went back to bed just to be woken up again by a loud thud. Something had landed on their roof and then noisily rolled down the side. She ignored it. Again, she was woken up. 
This was a little after 1 a.m. This time, she could smell something. Something like smoke. The house was on fire, but where? It was George's office. It was on fire. Panicked, Jenny ran into their room to wake him, and they both ran around the house, waking their other children. The children that had stayed up late were asleep in the attic, but it was blocked by a burning staircase. George grabbed the phone to call the fire department, but the phone wasn't working. So George, Jenny, George Jr., John, and Marion, along with two-year-old Sylvia, ran out of the house. While one of the children ran to the neighbor's house to call the fire department, George Sr. went to the side of the house to grab his ladder and try to save the children in the attic. But his ladder wasn't there. It was, wasn't where it was supposed to be. He ran to the truck, and he was going to pull it up to the side of the house, but it wouldn't start, so he tried the other vehicle, and it wouldn't start either, which he found odd because they were both working just fine the day before. Meanwhile, the fire department was shorthanded, one, because of the time of the year, and two, because most firefighters were overseas in the war. The fire chief was the one on duty that night, and he couldn't drive the truck, and he had to call around to find another fireman. The saddest part was that the Sauter family was forced to stand around for close to an hour while their house burned down with five of their family members still inside. I couldn't even imagine. I would absolutely lose it. It wasn't until daybreak that the firefighters were able to sift through the ashes to try and find the bodies of the five children that were trapped in the house, but as they came to an end around 10 a.m. of sifting through the ashes, they couldn't find a trace of any bodies or bones. It was like the children had just disappeared. Over the next few months, the Sauters started questioning everything that happened that night, like the fact that the phone wasn't working, the missing ladder, the trucks not starting, and the weird phone call that Jenny took that night. All of these things were odd. What were the chances of all of this happening on the same night during a horrifying house fire? I mean, I guess you could justify the phone. The line could have been burned or something, but the rest of it? You can't find a reason for those to just happen. This is where things start getting weird. Four days after the fire, George Sr. bulldozed soil over the ashes of the place that once was the foundation of his family home. They intended on building a memorial garden in memory of their assumed deceased children. The fire chief had actually advised against this so that the fire marshal's office could further investigate the reason for the fire. George and Jenny couldn't take the side of the ruins, so they ignored this request. The next day, they did a quick inquest and found that the fire was likely caused by faulty wiring, but George didn't believe this. There was no way, since he recalled seeing the Christmas lights on the outside of the house remain on for a while as they stood and watched their house burn down. An electrical fault would have cut all power. Even weirder, one of the jury on the inquest had a previous run-in with George. See, George was a good man, but he did not hold his tongue when it came to his own opinions, especially when it came to the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. The jury that had assisted on the inquest was once an insurance salesman who became annoyed when George had rejected his offer. The house will go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed, he told George. Later, evidence would mount up to suggest that the fire was arson. The telephone repairman had seen a hanging phone line that was connected to the house and ascertained that it had been deliberately cut. That would require someone to climb a 14-foot telegraph pole and reach a further two feet to reach the wire, which brought George to the conclusion that the two trucks were also tampered with as well. 
This isn't even the gist of it. The ladder that was no longer where it was supposed to be had been thrown down an embankment 21 yards from the house, and as the case gained the media attention, a bus driver that serviced that route said that he had seen a group of people throwing balls of fire at the house. If you remember correctly, Jenny was woken by a thud on the roof that she had just ignored, but later, as two-year-old Sylvia was playing in the yard, she had found a green rubber ball. George recognized it as what he referred to as a pineapple bomb. And if this case wasn't suspicious enough, as Jenny was sifting through the rubbish that was once her home, she had found appliances that had kept their shape. Now, most wouldn't think this odd at all. But Jenny was shocked. She was shocked because the fire department had told them that the fire burned hot enough for their children to be burned so badly that there weren't even any bones left. So Jenny called a local crematorium and inquired about this. They told her that a two-hour fire burning at 1,100 degrees Celsius or 212 degrees Fahrenheit would still leave human bones intact. The solder house burned at a lower temperature and for less than an hour. So how would that be possible? How would there not be any remains of her children at all? This all led them to believe that it was arson and that their children were still alive. Then the sightings began. The earliest sighting was from a woman who claimed to have witnessed the fire and saw the children in a passing car with their heads sticking out of the window. Then, the morning after the fire, they were supposedly spotted at a rest stop about 50 miles from their house. A witness had said that she had served them breakfast and mentioned a Florida plate on the vehicle that she assumed they had arrived in. Then, a woman in a hotel an hour from the Sauter home saw the children's pictures in the paper and recognized them as a family she had served a week after the fire. She told police, The children are accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. She said she didn't remember the exact date, but that the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds at around midnight. She stated that she tried to speak with the children in a friendly manner, but that the men seemed to get hostile and refused to allow her to talk to them, claiming that one of the men even shot her a hostile look and then turned to the other speaking in Italian, and that's when the party stopped talking to her altogether. She didn't try to talk to them after that, and they checked out the next morning. Keep the fact that the lady at the hotel had said that the adults were of Italian extraction. As mentioned before, George and Jenny were both from Italy, and they lived in Fayetteville, West Virginia. The area they lived in had a large population of Italian immigrants, and George had made some enemies with his outspoken angry views on Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. At that time, George's oldest son was actually serving in the War for America which probably fueled his anger towards Mussolini. He was disliked by many for his views and even received threats because of them. In fact, the salesman prior warning to George about his children being destroyed in the fire was attributed to the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. That's what he said. George wholeheartedly believed that his children were still alive and that the Italian mafia was responsible for their disappearance. He also believed that the fire was clearly intended to cover up the kidnappings. 
So two years after the fire, the Sauters sent their suspicions to the FBI. They were convinced that their case was a solid one, and surprisingly, so did the FBI boss, J. Edgar Hoover, sending a personalized reply that offered help, if the local authorities allowed it. Part of the letter read, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. Obviously, the Sauters were hyped about this, but the Fayetteville Police and Fire Department refused to allow the FBI to investigate. This only further convinced the Sauters of a cover-up, so it was time for them to hire their own investigator. This is where C.C. Tinsley comes into play a private investigator. Tinsley was actually the one who discovered that the insurance salesman who had threatened George with the house fire and that his children would be destroyed as a result was also the jury who found it was faulty wiring that caused the fire. Even more so, Tinsley also discovered something even more confusing. A priest confided in Tinsley that the Fayetteville fire chief, F.J. Morris, had confessed to finding a human heart at the scene, in the ashes. He had put it in a metal box and buried it at the scene. So after some prodding, he convinced Morris to take him to the area where he had supposedly buried the heart, and sure enough, there it was. However, it was discovered that the heart was actually a beef liver. Morris eventually confessed to setting up the hoax in hopes that the Sauters would see the discovery of the heart and believe that their children had died in the fire and stopped the investigation. Why, though? What was he hiding? Was he hiding something? In 1949, almost four years after the fire, the Sauters hired a pathologist from Washington and ordered a more forensic excavation of the fire scene. Strikingly enough, several small fragments of human vertebrae were found. The bones were sent off to the Smithsonian Institute for Analysis, which had reported that the four lumbar vertebrae belonged to one person. However, The transverse recesses were fused, which would indicate that the body would have belonged to someone between the ages of 17 and 22. None of the missing solder children were of that age. Therefore, it was concluded that the bones had been in the soil that George had used to create the memorial garden. Years passed and the solders were plagued with what they thought were sightings of their children. George would even chase down these leads to no end. A woman in St. Louis claimed that Martha was living in a convent and the other children were living with a distant relative. George happened across a photo of a ballet dancer in New York and traveled to the girl's school and demanded to see the girl, but was refused. A Houston woman even wrote to George and told him that a man she knew got drunk one night and confessed he was Luis Sauter, who was nine at the time of the fire. He even claimed that he was living with his brother Maurice there. So George and his son-in-law, Grover, traveled there in great hope, but no longer could find the woman with the initial tip-off. Police, however, recognized the description and helped them track the man down. In turn, the man denied the conversation and denied being Louis Sauter. Grover said that George didn't believe the denial and carried that doubt with him to his deathbed. A billboard on the side of the freeway went up in 1952 with photos of the children and offers of $10,000 reward for information that could lead to any one of the children. Later, the billboard would be marked as a local landmark and help 
cement the case in the minds of locals and those that passed through, but never gained any substantial leads. They received their final lead in 1967 when Jenny received a letter postmarked Central City, Kentucky. Inside the letter was a photograph of a man that bore a striking resemblance to Luis. The back of the photo read, Luis Sauter, I love brother Frankie. Little boys, A90132. There was a Frankie, there wasn't a Frankie Sauter, and the rest made zero sense to them. The Sauters hired a shady private investigator to decode the message on the back, who then turned around and took their money and ran with it. George Sauter passed away in 1969. Stricken with grief, Jenny Sauter dressed in black for the remainder of her life and spent her time tending to the memorial garden. After 37 years of being a constant presence of Route 60, the Sauter children quietly disappeared once again. The remaining Sauter children joined their own children and continued to publicize the case. Some believe that the children were taken to Italy and that if they knew their family had survived, that they may have avoided contact to keep them out of harm's way. Today, some people think that the children did in fact die in the fire that night. There are books out there that theorize this, one being Virginia's Unsolved Murders by George Bragg. Nothing on this case has come up. No one knows the answers to this almost 76-year-old mystery. Until next time, stay safe, friends. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit that subscribe or follow button and tune in every Monday for a new episode. Episode suggestions can be sent to criminalbeautypod at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at criminalbeauty20 and on Instagram at criminalbeautypod.